Hi, it's Amy Siskin of The Weekly List and author of the book, The List, and welcome to episode 28 of The Weekly List Podcast, which accompanies week 110 of The Weekly List website, theweeklylist.org, and corresponds to the week ended December 22nd, 2018. Welcome. As we said last week, I've always had this theory with the list that as we were getting closer to the end, it would be pandemonium. (laughs) And last week's list was the longest weeks so far, and this week came in second. We've had two back-to-back weeks of just craziness, and much of it was manufactured craziness. I'm going to close out the week where it started as we summarize things, where Trump forced a shutdown of our government. The third shutdown in 2018, mind you, with Republicans in control of the House, Senate, and the White House. And during this week, we'll trace through it as we go through the list, he switched his opinion abruptly twice, starting on Sunday saying he was going to shut down the government, then Tuesday he was not, and then out of nowhere, after the Senate had voted Wednesday, shut down the government on Thursday or said he would no longer go along with what he said he would go along with. We're going to talk about that. There was also a major turning point this week with Defense Secretary Jim Mattis resigning and the way he resigned in a very public rebuke with a letter that we're going to talk about, talking about a change of American values under Trump, aligning with authoritarians and alienating our allies and the importance of that in the world order and our our leadership. And that's something we've talked about frequently in the list. And Mattis's resignation reverberated throughout Congress, throughout the country, and placed our country on edge. There are also major happenings this week we're going to go through in the Mueller probe, the Michael Flynn sentencing, so much to go through. And of course, Trump's beloved stock market plunging in December. So as we start out, I just want to talk about some interesting items. The Another dictionary, Merriam-Webster, chose for their word of 2018 the word justice, noting the word consistently bumbled up into top lookups on its website for uses such as obstruction of justice, social justice, and the Justice Department. Also an interesting data point, there was a survey done of 110 CEOs by the Yale School of Management this week, and they found 70% of the CEOs had to apologize to international partners for Trump's, quote, embarrassing diplomatic messages when traveling abroad for business. Also, 87% of the CEOs surveyed agreed Trump's negotiating style had cost the country the trust of allies. A senior associate dean at Yale added that, quote, divisiveness of pitting people against each other has worn the business community down. The Washington Post, which has been tracking Trump's misleading and false statements, reported in the first 700 days in office, he has now made 7,400, excuse me, 546 false or misleading claims. And this is a thing I keep harping on. In the first eight months, he averaged five false or misleading claims per day. The record was in October leading up to midterms when he averaged 39 per day. That's when he was doing all those campaign rallies. But even in November, he averaged 29 per day. 
So that's the amount of lie and it becomes propaganda. Also noteworthy this week, CNN noted that Trump's entities are the focus of at least six investigations. All of his life is now being investigated, including the Trump campaign, transition team, inaugural committee, administration, foundation, and organization. So starting week 110 is basically the way we've started week one which back then seemed not normal, continues to be not normal, and that is with Trump attacking the cast of Saturday Night Live. They didn't like the, he didn't like their depiction of him in a sketch, which was a takeoff of A Wonderful Life and was hilarious. If you haven't seen it, you should look it up and watch. But Trump on Sunday tweeted, quote, a real, and real in capital letters, scandal is the one-sided coverage hour by hour of networks like NBC and Democrat spin machines like Saturday Night Live. Trump also tweeted, quote, should be tested in courts, can't be legal, only defame and belittle, collusion, question mark. Trump drew rebukes, understandably, that he was again threatening the Constitution's First Amendment protection. And by the way, SNL is a comedy show. It's not news. But for Trump, I guess if you're into (laughs) entertainment, maybe these are all blended one and the same. Um, Trump also quoted the Wall Street Journal's Daniel Henniger in a tweet saying, quote, it looks here as though General Flynn's defenses are incidental to something larger to figure out if it can get a path to Donald Trump, which was really interesting. We're going to talk a little bit about this. Trump early in the week was very defensive of Michael Flynn. Let's watch how that played out. Trump also tweeted about, quote, the Russian witch hunt hoax, that's a mouthful, uh, started as an insurance policy long before I got elected, adding they are entrapping people. Obviously, this is false. The Mueller probe started May 2017 after he is elected. But again, that was talking about entrapping Flynn. An NBC Wall Street Journal poll found that 62% of Americans believe Trump has not been honest and trustworthy about the Mueller probe, up from 56% in August. So that's basically six in 10 Americans, just like a USA Today Suffolk University poll, which also found six in 10 Americans have little or no trust in Trump's denial that there is no collusion in his campaign with Russia just 24% trust him. So those numbers are moving. 60% roughly in between the two of them of Americans believe Trump is lying about his campaign colluding with Russia. That's a turning point, folks. So now I want to get into, before we go into Russia, our weekly segment of everyday racism. On Monday, Reuters reported Maria Meza and her children. That was the picture that was in week 107. The mother photographed running with her daughter from tear gas at the U.S.-Mexico border began seeking U.S. asylum. On Monday, Representatives Nanette Berrigan and Jimmy Gomez from the Congressional Hispanic Caucus live tweeted about migrants' attempts to apply for asylum, citing long wait times and migrants being ignored. On Tuesday, a local bank in the suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio, called 911 when Paul McCowns, a black man, tried to cash his first paycheck. McCowns was asked for two forms of ID, which he provided. On Wednesday, a New Jersey high school wrestler was forced by referee Alan Maloney to cut off his dreadlocks minutes before his match or forfeit the competition. 
The wrestler, who was a black teen, had to cover his hair. The state's Interscholastic Athletic Association said in a statement they are recommending Maloney, who is white, not be assigned to referee any more matches until the matter has been thoroughly reviewed. On Thursday, the Philadelphia Inquirer reported 14 girls dropped letters at non-white homes praising Trump, Pence, and saying, quote, there is now a law against filthy nutheads like you, along with death threats. High school students believe two of the teens who dropped off the letters are the same youths posting in Ku Klux Klan hoods that are circulating on Snapchat on Thursday. And all are students at Strath Haven High School in an affluent part of Delaware County just outside Philadelphia, Swarthmore, Pennsylvania. Detroit Free Press reported a noose was found in a boys' locker room at Athens High School in Troy on Thursday. After an investigation, the student responsible was found and suspended. The principal called it a cry for help. On Thursday, a federal judge rejected the Trump regime's request to dismiss a lawsuit challenging its plan to add a question regarding citizenship to the 2020 census, paving the way for a trial in January. Financial Times named George Soros the Person of the Year for 2018. The editorial board explained the pick, quote, is usually a reflection of their achievements. His selection is also about the values he represents. We've been talking about how Soros has sort of been the dog whistle for anti-Semitism throughout our country, especially by Trump, (laughs) but by others who follow his lead, of course, which is what is happening with all of these items. On Thursday, AP reported on the scope of the Migrant Children Program under Trump decades after the U.S. had stopped institutionalizing kids because large crowded orphanages were causing lasting trauma. This is shocking, folks. Okay, now we're going to talk about two different numbers. According to AP, there's roughly 14,300 migrant children in government care. When Trump took office, the same federal program had 2,720. So he's added almost 12,000 migrant children to government care. Ding, ding, ding. You know we're going to be reporting soon about who's making money off that, and they're probably Trump friends, but we'll get to that, I'm sure, in future weeks as reporters dig that up. But AP reported that in terms of, again, the dangers of these large crowded uh, facilities, About 5,400 of the migrant children are sleeping in shelters with more than 1,000 other children, and 9,800 are in facilities with at least 100 children. NPR reported nearly 15,000 migrant children are now held in government care. According to the Department of Health and Human Services, the national network of more than 100 shelters are 92% full and there's no end in sight. Children are continuing to stream into our country, and we're continuing to separate children. The largest migrant youth centers are the 10th cities in Tornillo, Tornillo, Texas, set up in a patch of desert. The heated tents can hold up to 3,800, but will require hiring more staff. I'm going to keep talking about that, folks. These are like internment camps. They're in the middle of deserts. We are holding children there. It is inhumane. It will be a blight on our country when this nightmare is over. 
On Thursday, Homeland Security Secretary Nielsen testified before the House Judiciary Committee over the death that we talked about last week of a seven-year-old Guatemalan girl. Representative Hank Johnson asked her about the girl's death and how many other children had died in the custody of DHS. Nielsen responded, I'll get back to you on that figure. Nielsen also told the committee under the Trump regime's new, quote, catch and return policy, some migrants will return to Mexico while their immigration proceedings go forward rather than remain in the U.S. Nielsen said the new policy will apply to both asylum seekers who entered the U.S. legally at the border, as well as apprehended after entering the country illegally. So I'm going to say that again. Under catch and return, they're going to send people who have legally come into our country back to Mexico. Again, this is just unbelievable what is happening week after week with our treatment of migrants at our southern border. The incoming Democratic chairs of the House Judiciary Committee and House Homeland Security Committees told Nielsen they would be conducting further investigations when they take over the committees. On Monday, Fox host Fox News host Tucker Carlson defended his comments in week 109, tweeting, quote, we spend a lot of time talking about the threats to free speech. That day, three more sponsors dropped. Carlson doubled down on his show Monday night, saying migrants make our country poorer and dirtier. As of Tuesday evening, more than 15 sponsors had dropped from the show. On Wednesday, Carlson's show cut to fewer commercial breaks as advertisers continued to flee. Contributor Alan Dershowitz appeared, saying he felt compelled to say that he disagreed with Carlson's comments. Even the sycophant is dissing you, Carlson. The figures I saw by the end of the week, roughly 25 sponsors had left Carlson's show. On Tuesday, a panel of judges in the 10th Circuit dismissed 83 ethics complaints against Brett Kavanaugh citing he is no longer covered by the judiciary's disciplinary process since he is on the Supreme Court. I just want to like stop and accent how important this is. There were all these complaints that were filed. Initially, um, two judges in D.C. recused themselves from being involved, including Merrick Garland. It was then sent to the 10th District uh, in Colorado, the chief justice of that 10th District, refused to recuse himself despite despite claims that Kavanaugh advocated to get him his position. And he was also on Trump's short list of candidates for the Supreme Court. And that is the judge who presided over getting rid of the 83 ethics complaints against Brett Kavanaugh. Sounds like justice to me. On Wednesday, a federal judge ruled against the Trump regime, blocking its new policy that bars asylum for those who cross into the country without authorization. Okay, so now we're going to get into Russia. Russia, Russia, Russia. And I, I just want to talk about one part before we get into all the various investigations. And that is what we're finding out about the 2016 election. On Monday, a pair of comprehensive reports made public by the Senate Intelligence Committee revealed Russian teams using social media platforms to influence the 2000 election and cited efforts are ongoing. The Russian influence campaign in 2016 was run by Internet Research Agency, which also goes by IRA. 
The reports cite an extraordinary effort to target African-Americans on social media in an effort to suppress Democratic voters. The reports indicated Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, generated responses on a scale beyond any other uh, social media platform with 187 million comments, likes, and other reactions more than Twitter and Facebook. So that's new. I don't think anybody knew the scope of involvement of Instagram in targeting people during the 2016 election. The report also cited that pro-Bernie Sanders and Jill Stein content were among the RRA's go-to themes across other platforms. Throughout her campaign, Stein has called for a conciliatory approach with Russia. Uh, but just to bring that up, so that was their plan to make things harder for Hillary. And then once she went through the primary and it was Trump against Hillary, they were then trying to inflame things with Bernie and Jill Stein. So many of us might have felt this at the time, uh, but now you see it in the real world from these reports that this was actually happening and continues to happen. When I use the word ongoing, I think that's super important for us to realize they're still here. The reports also cited after Trump took office, Russian operatives targeted Robert Mueller, appointed in May 2017, seeking to neutralize what they saw as the biggest threat to Trump remaining in office. On Monday, the NAACP called for a week-long boycott of Facebook, saying its business practices and spreading of disingenuous portrayals of the African community should prompt further congressional investigation. Facebook also returned donate, excuse me, the NAACP also returned Facebook's donations. And then this is just kind of punctuates it all. The Washington Post editorial board noted from the report's findings, quote, the Russian operation is staggering in its scale, precision, and deceptiveness, saying Russia's support for Trump's election is no longer disputable. That's important, folks. So this continued, and Facebook has had a lot of negative press, and this week got a lot worse. They've been defensive, first denying that Russia was able to harness their platform during the election, then admitting it, then having this cover-up where they tried to slam people using George Soros, who we talked about this week. On Tuesday, the New York Times broke another bombshell, reporting according to Facebook internal documents they obtained, the company raised, while the company was raising, said it raised a privacy wall, it also gave some of the world's largest technology companies more intrusive access to users' personal data. Personal data has become a prized commodity. Facebook allowed Microsoft Bing search engine to see the user's friends without consent and gave Netflix and Spotify the ability to read users' private messages. Shocking. On Wednesday, the Attorney General for the District of Columbia sued Facebook for allowing Cambridge Analytica to gain access to tens of millions of users' information without their permission. And then closing out the week on Friday, the Director of National Intelligence, Dan Coates, delivered a report which details Russia internet propagandists tried to influence American voters ahead of the 2018 midterms. He delivered that report to the White House. It has not been made public. Coates did publicly say, quote, Russia and other foreign countries, including China and Iran, conducted influence activities and messaging campaigns. 
to further their strategic interests here. And now fasten your seatbelts because we're going to talk about the Russia investigations and beyond. But before we get into that, just want to talk about our friend Roger Stone, who on Monday settled a defamation suit brought against him by an exiled Chinese businessman seeking $100 million, admitting to publishing false and misleading statements about the Chinese businessman on InfoWars. <laughs> In lieu of money, the agreement requires Stone to run ads in national newspapers, including the Wall Street Journal, apologizing and admitting he lied, as well as publishing a retraction of the false statements on social media. On Monday, two former business associates of Michael Flynn, Bijan Kian, and Camille Aptikin were charged in a Virginia court with trying to influence U.S. politicians to extradite a Turkish clerk. Again, notice that this was not done by Mueller's team. This has been farmed out to a Virginia court. In court papers, Flynn is referred to as Person A, although he is not charged in the case, and is instead cooperating with Mueller's team. So Mueller's team is smart, getting some of these investigations out um, in New York, the Southern District of New York, in Virginia. Khan and Aptigan, who lied about their involvement of Turkish government officials in the project, are charged with conspiracy and acting as agents of a foreign government. Aptigan is also accused of making false statements. Khan, a former official for the Trump transition team, oh, there's that little bit, he was actually involved in the Trump transition team, made a brief appearance in the Virginia federal court. Aptigan, a dual Turkish-Dutch citizen living in Istanbul, remains at large. On Monday, Mueller's office released notes of Flynn's interviews with FBI agents on January 24, 2017, ahead of his sentencing Tuesday, in connection with his guilty plea. And remember, we talked about these tweets and this effort from the Trump regime to portray Flynn as being entrapped. The notes show Flynn made false statements about his communication with Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak during the transition and also lied about his ties to Turkey. On Tuesday, and this was in the morning before the sentencing hearing, Press Secretary Sarah Sanders criticized Comey and the FBI, telling reporters at the White House, quote, the FBI broke standard protocol in the way they came in and ambushed General Flynn. On Tuesday, Trump tweeted in, to Flynn in the morning, quote, good luck today in court to General Michael Flynn, citing, quote, tremendous pressure being put on him and adding of the campaign, quote, there was no collusion. So this was an extraordinary sentencing hearing. If, if you didn't follow it or watch it, worth clicking on the links during the as part of the weekly list. But I tried to highlight some of the more important parts of it. Uh, this was on Tuesday. Judge Emmett Sullivan made clear he was infuriated by Flynn's conduct, including the suggestion by Flynn and his supporters that he had been duped by the FBI. Sullivan forced Flynn to admit publicly he knew he was lying to the FBI about the conversations related to Russian sanctions and berated the three-star general for his misdeeds, saying, quote, arguably, you sold your country out. Ouch, that's coming from a judge about to sentence you. 
Also citing Flynn's clandestine work for the Turkish government, Sullivan asked a prosecutor with a special counsel's office whether Flynn should be charged with treason, adding, I'm not hiding my disgust, my disdain. Later, Sullivan walked back his treason questions, saying, quote, I'm not suggesting Flynn committed treason, adding, I was just trying to determine the benefit and the generosity of the government. Mueller's team said Flynn has provided substantial assistance to the attorneys in the Eastern District of Virginia, that's a trial we just talked about, in obtaining that charging document related to the charges against Ken and Aptigan. Mueller's team moved to sentence Flynn now because, quote, the vast majority of his cooperation was complete. Sullivan, however, postponed sentencing for Flynn for 90 days. Flynn left the courthouse to chance of lock him up. On Sunday, <laughs> Trump attorney, I know, I just have to stop. And I promised myself when the stuff started coming out with about Flynn, it was the first time I played him back at his campaign rallies. Uh, chanting lock her up about Hillary. And I promised the day that Flynn was sentenced, I would put it on my social media again. So I, I did. So he wasn't sentenced yet, but um, there was a very clever man that looked like Santa Claus who had a big sign that said Putin's puppet as he got out of the car and there were chance of lock him up. Okay. On Sunday, Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani told CNN that a letter of intent for Trump Tower Moscow had not been signed. Rudy said, quote, it was a real estate project. There was no letter of tent to go forward, but no one signed it. On Tuesday, CNN obtained a signed letter of intent dated October 28, 2015, bearing Trump's signature. The letter opened negotiations for Trump's condominiums, a hotel and commercial property. On Wednesday, when asked about the signed copy, Giuliani changed his story, telling CNN, I was wrong if I said it. I haven't seen the quote, but I probably meant to say there was never a deal, much less a signed one. Rudy getting caught in his lies again. On Tuesday, the New York Attorney General's office announced the Trump Foundation has agreed to dissolve following a court decision last month to allow the Attorney General's lawsuit to move forward. Attorney General Barbara Underwood accused the foundation of, quote, a shocking pattern of illegality and saying it functioned, quote, as little more than a checkbook to serve Mr. Trump's business and political interests. Alan Weiselberg, remember him? He's the accountant, told state investigators of excuse me, the bookkeeper, Alan Weiselberg, told state investigators of the foundation's policies Quote, there's no policy, just so you understand. Underwood said the foundation's remaining $1.75 million will be distributed to other charities. On Wednesday, Trump complained about his foundation being dissolved in a series of three tweets, saying he is getting, quote, slammed by Governor Andrew Cuomo and the Dems, and that he would, quote, never be treated fairly by these people. Trump also attacked the former attorney general, quote, sleazebag AG Eric Snyderman, saying he was, quote, head of New Yorkers for Clinton and claiming, quote, the Trump Foundation has done great work. A federal judge ruled in favor of BuzzFeed in a lawsuit brought by businessman uh, Eleskev Gubarev, based in Cyprus, who said he and his companies were falsely linked in the Steele dossier to Russia hacking. 
The judge in that case, ruling out of Miami, said BuzzFeed cannot be found liable for publishing a document that had become subject of official government conduct, adding BuzzFeed's article was, quote, fair and true. On Wednesday... Oleg Deripaska, we've spoken about him extensively, the Russian oligarch, agreed to cut his stake in Russian steel giant Ruzel to below 50% in exchange for the Treasury Department lifting sanctions, a move expected to be closely monitored by the Kremlin. Another favor for Russia. Wow, color me shocked. On Wednesday, the Center for Responsive Politics reported Trump's 2020 campaign routed money through a secret LLC used as a shell company to illicitly coordinate ad buys with the National Rifle Association. Trump's 2020 campaign continued to use the same individuals working for the firms as and made payments through Harris Sykes Media LLC, which was also all at the center of the 2016's campaign's illegals coordination with the NRA that we talked about in recent weeks. National Media, Red Eagle Media Group, and America Media and Advocacy Group, which share staff, resources, and adjacent storefronts in Alexandria, Virginia, are all facing allegations of illegal coordination. A Trump super PAC that we talked about last week, Rebuilding America Now, which is also in week 109 because it was being scrutinized in the Mueller probe that was started by one of Trump's buddies who also ran his inauguration committee, is also alleged to have routed payments through national media's affiliates in a campaign coordination scheme. So you can see there's more and more investigations in more and more places but we're not done yet. On Thursday, BuzzFeed reported Russian agents sought sensitive financial information on its enemies through the U.S. Treasury, including backers of Hillary Hillary Clinton weeks before the June 9th, 2016 Trump Tower meeting. Officials at the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, also goes by the acronym FinCEN, said they reported the use of the back channel to Treasury's Counterterrorism Unit and Security Office and requested an investigation. FinCEN officials believed the Russian agency making the request was set up by Putin in 2001 and closely tied to Russia's espionage apparatus. The group started cultivating civil servants in 2015. So more examples of Russia being involved in hacking and being involved in our election in 2016. On Wednesday, there was a docket entry at the U.S. District Court in Manhattan, which was sealed from public view and placed in a vault and was related to a criminal case against Michael Cohen. So we're seeing a few of these roll around. We talked about one last week. Uh, These are under seal. We don't know what they are. One last week was relating to the Mueller probe. This one's relating to Michael Cohen in the Southern District of New York. So that means there's more fun to come. On Wednesday, the Wall Street Journal reported testimony by Trump in 2010 and in 1988 for a government integrity commission revealed he has a deep understanding, in fact, of campaign finance laws. Giuliani had argued that Trump has limited understanding of campaign finance laws. Experts say his deep understanding could be critical if investigators ever pursue a case over directing hush money payments. 
On Wednesday, Washington Post reported Mueller asked the House Intelligence Committee last Friday for an official transcript of Roger Stone's testimony, a sign prosecutors could be moving to charge him with a crime. This marks the first formal request by Mueller's team to the committee. Stone denied lying to Congress, telling the Washington Post, quote, no reasonable attorney who looks at it would conclude I committed perjury. The special counsel has had an unofficial copy of Stone's testimony from September 2017 for weeks. Experts say prosecutors cannot bring charges without an original certified copy of a transcript. So expect some indictments coming soon for Roger Stone. On Wednesday, the Wall Street Journal reported that William Barr, Trump's nominee for attorney general, sent an unsolicited 20-page document to the Department of Justice criticizing aspects of the Mueller probe. The document excoriated Mueller's inquiry into obstruction of justice by Trump, saying it is based on, quote, factual misconceived theory that would cause lasting damage to the presidency and the executive branch. So you wonder why Trump picks these guys, and then this is the kind of stuff we learn. On Thursday, CNN reported that acting Attorney General Matt Whitaker consulted with ethics officials at the Department of Justice and has been advised that he does not need to recuse himself from the Mueller probe. So that was what we heard Thursday. A source said Whitaker has had, because he at first would not tell us anything, but a source said Whitaker has been in an ongoing discussion since early November after his appointment. Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein is still managing the Mueller probe on a day-to-day basis. That's story one. Hours later, the official who had said ethics officials had advised Whitaker did not need to recuse himself retracted that description of events. The Washington Post reported a senior DOJ official concluded Whitaker should recuse himself from overseeing the Mueller probe. Oh, sorry, we just got that backwards. Whitaker never asked the DOJ ethics officials for a formal recommendation, nor did he receive one. Instead, days after being appointed, Whitaker tapped a veteran U.S. attorney to become part of a four-person team of advisors on his new job, including giving guidance on recusal from the Mueller probe. Whitaker met repeatedly with DOJ ethics officials to discuss the facts and issues. A senior ethics official told Whitaker's advisors on Tuesday that it was a close call, but that Whitaker should recuse himself. That was Tuesday. Whitaker's advisors disagreed, recommending to Whitaker on Wednesday not to recuse, saying there was no precedent. Whitaker ignored the ethics official's advice, which had not, had it not been leaked, would not have been public. So again, he's proceeding forward. He set up this sham sort of committee of four friends that told him not to recuse himself. And he's using that excuse not to recuse himself, even though ethics officials said he should recuse himself. But again, we have to remember why Trump picked these people and what danger the Mueller probe is in. On Friday, CNN reported Trump has lashed out at Whitaker at least twice in the last few weeks, angered that federal prosecutors referenced him being Trump in Cohen's crimes, starting just two weeks after Whitaker took the job. The first instance happened when Cohen pled guilty to lying to Congress about the proposed Trump Tower project in Moscow, and second, when Cohen implicated Trump in the hush money schemes. 
Trump did not ask Whitaker to stop the investigations, but vented at what he felt was an unfair situation. Sources say Trump believes the attorney general should serve as his personal protector and settle his scores. And who else believes that? Dictators and authoritarians. So he's in good company. On Friday, NBC News reported Mueller is nearing the end of his team's investigation of Russian election interference and is expected to submit a confidential report to the attorney general as early as mid-February. Now we're going to shift back. We're going to come back to Russia, but we're going to shift back to some of the other news relating to politics. On Monday, in an interview with MSNBC, Senator Bob Corker would not say if Trump should be primaried, responding, quote, what is happening right now is not the standard republicanism that we've had in this country. On Tuesday, Politico reported Trump is planning to launch an unprecedented structure for his 2020 election, streamlining the Republican National Committee and his campaign into a single entity. Trump's re-election campaign and the RNC will field will merge their field and front fundraising program into a joint outfit, even sharing office space. Typically, re-election campaigns work in tandem with the RNC. I hate to use the word unprecedented, but this is unprecedented. Trump has basically subsumed the Republican National Committee. A further step to try to ensure that he won't be primaried, on Wednesday, the Washington Examiner reported the South Carolina Republican Party could cancel its 2020 primary, usually third in the presidential nominating calendar in order to protect Trump. Because we've talked about in past weeks, Nikki Haley stepping down as UN ambassador, US ambassador to the UN would be a viable primary candidate for Trump. So he's looking to take away any like ounce of people challenging him in 2020, getting rid of primaries, subsuming the RNC. Again, this is not normal, but the Republicans are letting him get away with it. On Wednesday, two more Kansas Republicans, a state senator and a representative switched parties to become Democrats. That's three in Kansas in the last two weeks. On Monday, CNBC reported the stock market is on pace for its worst December since the Great Depression. With the Dow Jones average and S&P down 7.6 and 7.8% respectively so far. Okay, and now time for corruption and incompetence in the Trump regime. On Tuesday, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin downplayed Trump's promise of a middle-class tax cut ahead of the midterms, because we all really believed when Trump said that on the campaign trail. Um, Mnuchin told Bloomberg, quote, I'm not going to comment on whether it is real thing or not a real thing. Let me guess. On Tuesday, a federal commission led by Education Secretary Betsy DeVos recommended rescinding Obama-era guidance meant to reduce the racial disparity in school discipline. The commission claimed the guidance made schools reluctant to address unruly students or violent incidents and recommended instead partnering with local law enforcement. According to a report by the Government Accountability Office, the Veterans Affairs Department has spent just $50,000 out of $6.2 million available for suicide prevention outreach in fiscal year 2018 budget. 
The report also stated that the VA had identified suicide prevention as its highest clinical priority in 2018. An average of 20 veterans die by suicide per day, and yet they have spent $57,000 on that so far this year. According to a report by the Center for Public Integrity, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross failed to sell $15,000 in bank shares until October 2018 after signing ethics documents saying he sold the shares in 2017. CNBC reported, here's some names from the past, Robert and Rebecca Mercer have disappeared from the political donor scene this election and donated far less in 2018 than their involvement with Trump, which had cast them in the public spotlight, which they tried to avoid. The Palm Beach Post reported after a five-year legal battle over taxable value of Trump National Golf Club in Juniper, California, Trump finally won and will be getting a $10.6 million tax refund for taxes he supposedly overpaid. Some good old kleptocracy. On Wednesday, okay, fasten your seatbelt, folks. We're going to get into some stormy weather here. On Wednesday, Trump abruptly announced, and, and I just want to lay some context here because we woke up Wednesday and everyone was still shocked by this Michael Flynn sentencing when the judge went berserk on him, threw out the word treason and told him he wasn't representing U.S. interests and refused to sentence him. And then we wake up Wednesday and it's like, boop, what happened to Tuesday? That was two years ago. On Wednesday, Trump abruptly announced his decision to withdraw U.S. troops from Syria reversing his position in September 2018, shocking people in the U.S. government and around the world. The Washington Post reported Trump made the decision on Tuesday after a small meeting attended only by senior White House aides and the secretaries of defense and state, most of whom, if not all, sharply disagreed with him. Senior lawmakers from both parties were not informed in advance, nor were close U.S. allies who are members of a U.S.-led coalition against the Islamic State. Defense Secretary Mattis was informed Tuesday night. Trump canceled a scheduled meeting with Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chair Bob Corker in the afternoon, instead communicating via Twitter, sending a video of himself outside the Oval Office. On Wednesday, TASS, which we've talked about, that's Russian state-owned, reported Russia praised Trump for the withdrawal. A Russian foreign ministry spokesperson called it a milestone story, which might evolve from this decision is a real prospect for a political solution. Okay, so that was the story. It shocked the country. It shocked our allies. None of the senior leadership in Congress knew what was coming. On Friday, the AP got the scoop on how this had played out. And you need to listen to this because it is so shocking and scary that this is how decisions are being made by Trump. AP reported Trump agreed to withdraw troops from Syria on a December 14th call, that's last week, with Turkish President Erdogan. The day after, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo spoke with his Turkish counterpart. Pompeo was notified of Erdogan's threat to launch a military operation against U.S.-backed Kurdish rebels in northeast Syria, where American forces are based. 
He then set up a call, that's Pompeo, between the two leaders. Pompeo, Mattis, and others on the national security team prepared a list of talking points for Trump to use in his phone call with Erdogan in order to tell him to back off. But instead, Trump ignored the script and sided with Erdogan. Like, where have we heard this before? Oh, another authoritarian, Putin. Okay, so again, they gave him the script of what he's supposed to say. He goes off script and agrees with an authoritarian leader, Erdogan. National Security Advisor John Bolton, who was on this call, stressed that victory over Islamic State had to be enduring, but Trump was not dissuaded and quickly capitulated by pledging to withdraw, shocking both Bolton and Erdogan. Erdogan on the call cautioned Trump over a hasty withdrawal. This is Erdogan who, who thought he was going to be on to negotiate with Trump and Trump just said, oh, no, no, you're right. I'm going to withdraw. Even though nobody in my administration is telling me this is a good idea, you said so. And then Erdogan again on the call cautioned Trump over a hasty withdrawal. Over the weekend, the national security team raced to come up with a plan that would reverse, delay, or somehow limit effects of the withdrawal. In addition, officials urged Trump to at least delay the decision to withdraw in order to give the military and Kurdish forces time to prepare. Trump was unmoved. Basically, we are leaving these Kurdish forces that we've been working with, we've been allied with, we're leaving them there to die. They are enemies of Erdogan. He wants to kill them. We are leaving them to die. On Thursday, Trump attacked an ally for criticizing his plan to withdraw, tweeting, quote, so hard to believe that Lindsey Graham would be against saving soldiers' lives and billions of dollars. Time to focus on our country and bring our youth home. On Thursday, the Wall Street Journal reported Trump had also ordered the start of a reduction of American forces in Afghanistan. More than 7,000 troops will begin returning home in the coming weeks out of 14,000 troops stationed there. The withdrawal, coupled with more than 2,000 troops returning from Syria, announced Wednesday, marked a dramatic shift in the U.S. approach to military engagement in the region. And Trump did it alone. Speaking of doing things alone, on Thursday, according to commentary published by a state-run Korea Central News Agency, North Korea will not denuclearize until the U.S. completely eliminates the American nuclear threat to North Korea. So again, we trusted Trump on his word that Kim Jong-un was going to denuclearize, and that again was a lie. On Thursday, just after 5 p.m., Trump tweeted, and I'm going to say how this all played out so you can remember how it felt in our country. This was a, a dramatic point. Just after 5 p.m., Trump tweeted, quote, General Jim Mattis will be retiring with distinction at the end of February, adding, quote, a new defense secretary of defense will be named shortly. I greatly thank Jim for his service. The New York Times reported earlier in the day, Mattis went to the White House with his resignated, resignation letter already written, but made one last attempt to persuade Trump to reverse his decision on pulling out 2,000 troops from Syria. After Mattis was rebuffed by Trump, he returned to the Pentagon and asked aides to print out 50 copies of his resignation letter and distribute them around the building. 
Mattis is the fourth member of Trump's cabinet to resign or be forced out since the midterm elections and the third in the last two weeks, just in terms of how it feels to be in the country right now. With the resignation of John Kelly and Mattis, the last of Trump's old guard national security team, policy will be left in the hands of Pompeo, the second secretary of state, and Bolton, Trump's third NSA. So again, how this was played out, Trump wanting to like win the battle of the cryon, uh, for all the cable news networks and all the other various reporting to say that Mattis had retired when actually it came out shortly after this letter that had been delivered around the Pentagon shortly after Trump's tweet was publicly released. Mattis's resignation letter was the sharpest and most public rebuke from inside the regime over the Trump's foreign policy, including rejection of the alliances and partnerships and Trump's tendency towards authoritarianism. We're going to talk about that letter, but just a short note here with his resignation, Mattis, what Trump, what's called the array of high ranking military officials. He appointed my generals, including Michael Flynn, HR McMaster and John Kelly. All the generals are gone from the Trump regime. In his letter, Mattis did not offer any praise of Trump or thank him in any way, rather saying, quote, I very much appreciate this opportunity to serve the nation and our men and women in uniform. Mattis wrote, we must be, quote, clear eyed about threats from groups such as Islamic State, saying, quote, we must do everything possible to advance an international order that is most conducive to our security, prosperity, and values. Mattis also wrote about democratic allies, quote, our strength as a nation is inextricably linked to the strength of our unique and comprehensive system of alliances and partnerships. And warned, we must be resolute and unambiguous in our approach to countries like China and Russia who want to shape a world consistent with their authoritarian model. Mattis wrote, quote, because you have the right to a secretary of defense whose views are better aligned with yours on these and other subjects, I believe it is the right time for me to step down from this position. Mattis's letter triggered a bipartisan chorus of concern with Senator Mark Warner saying this is scary, Senator Chris Murphy calling it a national security crisis, Senator Ben Sass saying it was a sad day for America. Senator Marco Rubio tweeted of the letter, made it abundantly clear, quote, we are headed towards a series of grave policy errors, which will endanger our nation, damage our alliances, and empower our adversaries. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who rarely challenges Trump publicly, said in a statement, quote, we must all maintain a clear-eyed understanding of our friends and foes and recognize that nations like Russia are among the latter. McConnell said of Trump's next defense secretary, quote, I urge him to select a leader who shares Secretary Mattis's understanding of these vital principles and his total commitment to American service members. Mattis's departure also left the Pentagon in a state of despair, with one official describing the mood in the building as eerie and another saying the building is in shock. I need to pause here. Um, this is something that 
it was in the early weeks of the weekly list. And I, there's also a video on the weekly list website about strange, Trump's strange alliances with authoritarians. This has been happening throughout that Trump cozies up with dictators. He feels comfortable with Duarte and Erdogan and Putin and Kim Jong-un and always is fighting with Theresa May and Merkel and that terrible mean guy, Justin Trudeau. He has realigned things in U.S. policy. And Mattis finally you know, lifted up in this letter the issue of what is happening with our foreign policy. And in our country, just talking about what it felt like this week, because we live in the chaos and we forget, Thursday was the most scared I have ever seen people fail since Trump took office. And that says a lot. Commentators on TV were saying it's time to be scared. Former um, yeah, heads of CIA were saying, Brennan, were saying it's time to be scared. With all the risks around our country and around the world, we have lost several senior members of Trump's cabinet. And this was thought, James Mattis, to be perhaps the last sane voice who had any sway over Trump and had any sway from him acting on his worst impulses. So that's why we picked Mattis for this week's picture, but it's also a scary week for our country. And as if that wasn't enough, with all the chaos, with the stock market down, with all that's going on with Russia and other investigations, pulling out from Syria, Afghanistan, Mattis's resignation. Now I want to talk about our government shutdown. This started on Sunday when White House Senior Advisor Stephen Miller told Face the Nation that Trump was absolutely willing to shut down the government if Congress does not authorize funding for his wall. And then on Tuesday, in an abrupt shift, Press Secretary Sarah Sanders backed off from the threat, telling Fox News, at the end of the day, we don't want to shut down the government. We want to shut down the border. On Wednesday, because that's the way we were thinking based on what Sanders said on Tuesday, on Wednesday, the Senate approved a stopgap spending bill. Voting was pushed back to late in the day, and some senators sang Christmas carols in the chambers as they prepared to leave for holiday break. That's Wednesday. On Thursday, Trump again abruptly changed course, informing House Republican leaders he would in fact not sign a short-term funding bill that does not include money for his wall. Some senators flew back to Washington. There was an amazing tweet by the senator of Hawaii that he landed in Hawaii, spent 20 minutes with his kids in the car, got back in a plane in Hawaii to fly back to Washington, D.C. because of Trump. There were also many other comments from Republicans who were ready to leave, some like Corker to leave for good, that what is Trump doing now? Reportedly, Trump was rattled by accusations from conservatives like Representative Mark Meadows and commentator Ann Coulter and talk radio host Rush Limbaugh that he was caving on his promised border wall. And that's why he decided it was a good idea to shut down the government. Shortly after Trump said he was going to shut down the government, just because we are in bizarro land Thursday afternoon, Trump tweeted a video clip of him singing in a duet of the theme song to Green Acres from the 2006 Emmy Awards, saying Farm Bill signing in 15 minutes. This is all happening Thursday after he just said, I'm going to shut down the government. Senators who had left or about to leave were changing their travel plans, and he's tweeting a duet from Green Acres. 
On Friday, in a series of nine morning tweets, Trump warned, shut down today if Democrats do not vote for border security, encouraging majority leaders Mitch McConnell to, quote, use the nuclear option and get it done. Shortly after, several Republican senators, including Trump allies like Senator Orrin Hatch and Lamar Alexander, said they do not support doing away with a legislative filibuster known as the nuclear option. The Senate could not get 60 votes needed to move the House bill forward. That included $5 billion for Trump's wall. Republicans conceded that one of their biggest hurdles was Trump's unpredictability and proclivity for abrupt, ch- abruptly changing his mind. On Friday, in an attempt to claim victory, Trump tweeted he would accept money for a steel slat barrier with spikes on the top, which he said would be just as effective as a wall and at the same time beautiful. Trump also tweeted a photo from the Oval Office of him saying some of the many bills that I am signing in the Oval Office right now. Upon closer examination, the piece of paper he is signing in the photo is blank. On Friday evening, after Trump was done with his tweets, with Trump unwilling to drop his demand for $5 billion of funding for his wall, the House and Senate adjourned with no spending deal. The government partially shut down after midnight. This again marked the third shutdown of 2018, the first time in 40 years the government has been closed three times in a year. Senator Lindsey Graham, who this week had been the subject of Trump's Twitter ire, told Fox News of Democrats in the shutdown, if he doesn't break them now, it's going to be terrible 2019. So Trump, President, so Mr. President, dig in. A GoFundMe campaign started by a Trump supporter who is a disabled Florida veteran raised $14 million from donors as of Saturday. Their goal is to raise $5 billion to fund the wall. So, so far they are short by uh, $4,986,000,000 <laughs> and change. And it's uncertain what they're going to do with this millions of dollars they're raising if it doesn't reach their goal. They said they were going to donate to the government. The government cannot just take their money. So we'll be watching that as well. On Friday, the Supreme Court said Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had undergone surgery. So as if we weren't like crazy enough that we hear that RBG had undergone surgery to remove two malignant growths in her left lung. You know, for those of us who are Jewish, who believe that like God can be looking out for you, these Two malignant growths were actually discovered during tests she had when she fractured her ribs on November 7th. That's how they found them. On Friday, the Supreme Court upheld the block of Trump's asylum ban with Chief Justice John Roberts signing with, siding with the four liberal justices. NBC News reported Justice Ginsburg voted from her hospital bed. And just, this is after the week is technically over, but as of today, Sunday, she is back up in bed and working again. That's RBG. We love her to death. On Friday, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, because it wasn't enough bad news on Friday, fell another 400 points, falling nearly 7% and ending for the week and ending its worst week since the financial crisis in 2008. A Fed rate hike, trade tensions with China, and government shutdown weighed in. The stock market ended its week of 2018 
on the Dow Jones Industrial and the break of a bear market. It's actually three points away from being down 20%. So it's a bear market. And the NASDAQ down 22% from its highs. All stock markets averages are now posting negative returns in 2018. On Saturday, Bloomberg reported Trump is now discussing firing Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Paul following this week's interest rate hike. Trump also blames Powell for the stock market losses. Advisors close to Trump are hoping his anger will dissipate, but reportedly he has repeatedly spoke of firing Powell in private conversations over the past few weeks. The Federal Reserve Act states governors may be, quote, removed for cause by the president, so it is unclear how much authority Trump would have for such an unprecedented challenge to the Fed's independence. This has been an ongoing story. Trump blames everything on Powell. He's threatened to fire him. He comments at him publicly through Twitter. These things are unprecedented, just like the DOJ and is threatening what is acting AG Whitaker about other things. He does not understand that they don't report to him or he understands, but he apparently does not care. On Saturday, Brett McGurk, the U.S. envoy to the global coalition fighting the Islamic State group, resigned in protest of Trump's abrupt decision to withdraw from Syria. McGurk had served in the position since 2015. Trump later tweeted he didn't know him, which is great because he reappointed him, but he didn't know him. And that was the head of the global coalition fighting the Islamic State. On Saturday, Politico reported Trump is facing a dangerous erosion of support among Republicans following recent moves like backing Saudis in the Khashoggi killing and his abrupt decision to pull out of Syria. Rank-and-file Republicans are also concerned that Trump is acting recklessly, you think, and hijacking the party, catering only to his base and making moves like the government shutdown to please hardliners. On Saturday, Trump canceled his flight to Mar-a-Lago, but the Capitol was largely quiet, with no meetings among House and Senate leaders scheduled and most lawmakers gone for the holidays. GOP leaders are frustrated by how quickly things unraveled in the past 48 hours. There does not appear to be any deal in sight or plans from leaders on how to move forward ahead of the holidays. This was one damn horrible week. I feel like I say that a lot, but folks, two back-to-back crazy weeks. I hope everyone enjoys their holidays. If you're watching this, please share it on your social media. Um, on your Twitter, Facebook, wherever you use on social media, LinkedIn, to, to say that you're, you're listening and recommend it to your friends. Please rate this. And until next week, stay safe, stay calm. And if Ruth Bader Ginsburg can do it at 85 years old after crack ribs and after a cancer operation, we all can stay strong and resist. Until then, happy holidays.